0: Welcome back, fans of comic books all ages allowed. This is episode number four of the DC Comics News, Spinner Rack. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and it's time to look at my picks for the top five books from DC Comics this week. Now, much like I would when I was a kid in the pharmacy, drugstore, down at the newsstand, Picking those 5 books is never easy. That wire spinner rack standing before you, twisting with each turn, so many choices. How can you possibly know you've picked the right one? Well, I went with 5, and I'm going to get started with book number 1. That book is Batman number 68. Let's start with what's happening. Pre-wedding excitement creates two very different bachelor, bachelorette experiences for Bruce and Clark and for Lois and Selina. But how much of it is all occurring in Batman's mind? Well, you're going to have to read the issue for that. I'm not focusing on spoilers. But I will tell you why I picked it. Tom King is picking up where he left off with the tension of the wedding. And if you talk about anything related to Batman or read any online content... The impact of the announced wedding and the build-up to it and the polarizing positions taken when, at the end of issue number 50, it did not happen, has created a wide range of feelings. And if you're bringing any of those feelings to the reading of this book, then that was by no means not intended for either you or any other reader, who no doubt is coming to this issue with their own opinion. The online teasers have practically foreshadowed, if not outlined, that Batman is, well, he's about to be taken down by Bane in a very severe fashion, something perhaps not seen since the days of the 90s and Nightfall. Now, studying how this happy moment and series that both couples are experiencing fits into that long-term plan, and knowing that it is all feeding Bane's plot of revenge, created this great underlying tension that was already heightened, given whatever your expectations are and feelings about the wedding might be. Also, the recognition that Batman is always going to return to the darkness is another tension that simply doesn't have to be stated, and by this time is thoroughly known, if it's not already known to every hardcore Batman fan. Who knows that this is one of his, well, foundations. But whether that choice or need is the deciding factor is usually part of his motivation. Let's get to my favorite parts. Regarding story, I have a few. The first, Lois and Selena getting drunk on interstellar alcohol. And then, after a series of fun events, including dressing up in super outfits... They sit back to watch the Superman replicas perform a strip tease. Bruce and Clark exchanging awkward small talk over soup and a tour of Wayne Manor was my second favorite story moment. I especially enjoyed the part where Clark admits he knows nothing about art, even though Bruce is trying to explain that the artist he's showing him is actually quite well known as far as artists are considered. Third final moment, page 20. Bruce and Clark have a moment of honest conversation. For the most part, it's coming from Clark. But the fact that Bruce is willing to listen and appears to almost be ready to respond in a similar heartfelt fashion makes it a very quiet, powerful moment. And in the midst of all their conversation, Clark says, I love being Superman, but I hate that I have to be Superman. You, Bruce, you hate being Batman. But you love that you have to be Batman. Now, regarding art, my favorite moment had to be Kara. And the way she stands right there in front of the door to the Fortress of Solitude. Framed between the shoulders of Selina in a bachelorette outfit replete with veil. And Lois in a hooded fur coat. And with them both facing her and knowing that she holds the key to unimaginable possibilities, Kara is saying, are you ready? It's a great first page for the issue. It's a great way to introduce just all the possibilities that not only could happen, but just the way that we all respond when someone says, are you ready? Because there's that gut check moment where you have to ask yourself, is there going to be something that's going to make you stop and hold back? These two ladies have already been drinking. They admit they're drunk, and they're ready to have a great time. Now, whose idea exactly it is, is never really made clear. But then again, the fact that somebody came up with it, and they both agreed, is the reason why we're here. Now, about the least favorite parts. Because it's going to happen, even on the books that I pick and like. Regarding story. Maybe I'm picky. Maybe it's something else. But page 14 felt like a filler moment. Sitting on the couch, watching a Gotham Knights highlight on a television screen that's bigger than my apartment, if not my entire apartment building, I would have thought more could have happened between Bruce and Clark. Even referencing the baseball moment from so many issues ago, with soups on the mound and bats at the plate. I know that there's potentially a quiet moment here as well, a value that perhaps I missed. But I also know that that would have been something that could have been brought back into the story and given a new light or context, which could have added its own value. But again, maybe I'm being picky. Regarding the art, I'll own this one as well. Page 13. The top panel is large enough to show Lois and Selina soaking in Brainiac's tub. It was a trap of some kind that had been set for Superman, and now it had been repurposed into the ultimate form of relaxation. And you'll have to read the issue for more about, well, that. The setting of the panel is sensual and relaxing, and I think it should be. But the placement of the water and steam strategically to cover extremities feels really forced, and then only seems to point out some other inconsistencies. Now, I'm certain that 13-year-old me loves it, but the older me asks some logistical questions, like if this is a hot tub, then how are they right near the surface so the water is unable to completely cover their bodies? Because isn't the whole point to relax and soak, be submerged, and whenever I've been in a hot tub, they're usually deep enough that I can cover my entire body up to my neck, if not dunk my head every once in a while for that ultimate full-body experience. I'd like to hear what you have to say, though, once you've had a chance to read Batman number 68, because those are all my thoughts for this one. My final score is going to be a four, and your score is something I can't wait to hear. Time for my next book, Hawkman number 11. Let's start with what's happening, and oh man, suffice to say that if you have not been reading along from issues 1 through 10, then everything I'm about to say might sound rather fantastical and unimaginable. What am I saying? You're all comic book lovers. This should be like cotton candy with sprinkles, And if you're into that, frosting. But come on, cotton candy with sprinkles. It's all being delivered by, well... Pick your favorite fantasy. And fill in the blank. Deathbringers have come to collect tribute from the Earth. Exactly what kind of tribute, they haven't gone into detail. But generally, tribute just doesn't sound good. Deathbringers, in case you are wondering, are two things. One... Upon first appearance, they're three gigantic Hawkman robots. But when those gigantic, and we're talking like fifty, hundred foot tall things, reveal panels that open, they're actually filled with winged warriors. Much like our main character, Hawkman. They have raised Ran, Thanagar, Earth, and every planet in the system. But they did it so many millennia ago that they've been lost to memory, except for a few rare mentions. They were imprisoned and eventually freed. And Carter Hall was actually their original leader at a time when he called himself Ketar. But after being troubled for long enough by what the cost of his mission had been, Katar betrays the Deathbringers, and his reward-slash-punishment is to reincarnate across time and space for millennia, if not longer, in an attempt to save as many lives as he took when he was the leader of the Deathbringers. Carter's been reconnecting with these past lives to unlock the secret of his past with the Deathbringers. But now, here in the present, the Deathbringers have come to Earth and are claiming tribute and the life of Carter Hall. Now why I picked it is really just based on the fact that Hawkman is one of those characters that has always intrigued me. I've loved his history and the different forms that it's taken and the mystery that goes with it for those times when I wasn't reading Hawkworld or only had the chance to get that rare issue here or there. And it's why I'm so excited to follow him tracing his lives across the galaxy and to learn of his never-ending mission. Which makes it easy to bring up my favorite parts, because when it comes to the story, what really captivates me the most is the way that the many versions of Carter are now given a chance to interact with not only each other, but Carter, and to do so in the form of battle. Because as the winged Deathbringers are approaching to attack Earth and kill Carter, which apparently his replacement, Idam, who had always sort of looked up to him, is now preparing to take that job of killing Carter Hall into his own personal hands. These different versions of Carter Hall, these lives that he's lived, are now here by his side, ready to fight with him to defend Earth and avenge the suffering that their planets, that they all consider themselves to be from, suffered at the hands of the Deathbringers. Each one is a great version, not only in characterization, but they make it really easy to move into my favorite parts about their art. And that has to do with their first introduction on page six, when we see the many versions of Carter's identity explode out from his body, sort of Vibrating in a dimensional separation, like an image I've seen many times used to represent forms of one person expressed across the multiverse. And as they do, they rush outward to attack those swarming Deathbringer soldiers. And we get to see not only the visual representation, but that added characterization of their images, which are all iconic. Whether it's Nighthawk, standing next to the dragon of Barbados, or the swooping figure of Goldhawk of Andrino, and Carter Thule of Ran. Each one carving across the sky, basically risking their lives to defend the planet that Carter calls home. And each one doing so with such singular and specific approaches that they all feel so real and different, and, more importantly, authentic. And then my second favorite image is on page 9, when Carter, on a double-splash page, is pinned by Idam. It creates so much tension in the panels that follow, and in the direction the story is taking, but it's such a dramatic pause. It's a feeling that not only is Carter defeated, and now he has to find another way to win, but it's also a sense that Carter's been on his back before, and he's always found a way to fight back. And for me, it created this great desire of watching him struggle and knowing that, for me, there was always that sense that, well, one... It's his book and he's a hero and there's been no suggestion that he's going to die. So I, I don't have any sense of that possibility. But two, because even if he does, he'll be reincarnated and continue his mission. And yet that's not reason enough for him to just give up. It's reason enough for him to fight, to keep fighting, to fight harder and maybe risk more than he would if he didn't know that. And this setup with that moment is really beautifully laid out and for me, presents so many great images that, well, I mean, it's one image, but it creates so many great comparisons for the images that follow that I really feel that its impact, while powerful in the moment, is also extremely resonant and it's something that I really enjoyed. Now that doesn't mean that I'm just here to blow sunshine. It does mean that those were some of my favorite parts And just like my favorite parts, there are also my least favorite parts. When it comes to the story, there's a three-panel appearance of the Silent Knight. And it's pretty cool in that he's a knight and that he's there to help defend citizens from attack. And then we get to see him and Madame Xanadu have this great interaction but if there was a need for the reference to Xanadu's age or history or that they have a shared relationship and that her previous name was Nimu or Nimu, it did not need this degree of presentation, which to me felt forced and something that I believe could have been created or presented differently. I'd like to see something more than this moment developed at some point. If there's a reason behind it, And if there isn't, while I appreciate the wink nod to a panel corner of DC's history, it was so small that I probably would have preferred uh, something a little bit more on the comedic side, like even the Beefeater, who really, for so very many reasons, was part of just this additional levity for the Justice League when things were going so terrible way back in their 1990s breakdown series. I'm not saying things are that bad but if we're just doing a quick drop-in from an old character, well, what's wrong with Beefeater? My other least favorite part in the story has to do with when Edom has Carter defeated. And Hall begins arguing to keep this between them. Edom then says, well, no problem, I've already got you beat. I mean, in so many words. And then he proceeds to leave Carter there, fly back towards his ship's, calling out for the Deathbringers to return to their ships and for the ships to launch their biggest weapon and to raise the city and then the entire Earth. Now, beyond the fact that by this point, I'm pretty sure lots of other heroes would have shown up by now and responded to these three gigantic monstrous machines floating in the atmosphere above this town and Earth, but also it felt like a Bond villain moment. One of those times where the bad guy clearly has the good guy beaten and doesn't finish him off right then and there. In a more realistic setting, or perhaps even in a different storyline, I would think Idam would have killed Carter. Maybe even put down all of the other versions of him. And then, with the people so shocked and horrified by what they've just witnessed, then wipe out the city. Maybe even get some of this on cell phone and broadcast it around the world. And then attempt to wipe out the world. I mean, if you're really planning on doing it. But this sort of pause to fly up and dramatically announce that now you're going to destroy everything. From a realistic and logistic side of things, it gives Hawkman and all the versions of him more time to actually do something. Which I'm guessing they're going to do in the next issue. And we're going to have to stick around to find out about that. But, before I do, I don't want to leave out the fact that there was also a least favorite part regarding the art. And that had to do with the fight sequence of panels on page 17. Which felt kind of rushed and lacked a lot of detail to Edom's face. That only made the clean lines for Carter's face and body that much more jarring. And I wasn't sure of the intention. I just know that when I was looking it over, even on a second and third reading, it felt like something that didn't work for me. And it made that part, just that page, a little less enjoyable. Overall, this was a really great culmination for a lot of development in story that's been leading up to, well, what felt like an ultimate, but now might fall more into the penultimate conclusion. For me... I'm going to go ahead and give this book a 4.5 out of 5. Your score is something that I just can't wait to hear. And for our next book, I'm taking a look at Red Hood Outlaw number 3. Let's start with what's happening. Essentially, Red Hood has taken over the Iceberg Lounge and is holding Penguin captive. Now, this sets in motion the fail-safe plan of an attack by the five aces to rescue Penguin or confirm that he's dead. The Iceberg Lounge is a big place and Penguin's got lots of traps. The challenge here is how can the Red Hood handle this attack when he's only just begun to settle in? Now, why I picked it falls more into an interesting category that ties Red Hood to another character that I enjoy, who is Roy, formerly the sidekick of Green Arrow, a member of the Titans, also known as Arsenal, also at one point a leader of the Outlaws and the Outsiders. And Roy and Red Hood have really struggled to find life in the New 52 and Rebirth, And finding a place that Jason Todd can call his own and a mission that's separate from Batman, but still doing Jason's version of revenge and his approach to fighting crime, in my belief, is something worth following, even if it's only intermittently, even if I only get the chance to pick up and try to see just what his newest approach is to creating a life for himself when his first go-around was so violently interrupted. And his return has been anything but smooth. Moving right into my favorite parts, I'm starting with the story and the characters known as the Sisters Sue. I'm not going to go into all their names. They're too enjoyable to read on your own. And as a group, at first, they appear a bit outmatched by the Five Aces. But after a few stumbles, their combined might and creativity are a great comedic tilt with plenty of violence and some really fun abilities that I refuse to spoil for you outright. Suffice to say that all of them, especially the biggest one named Susie, will surprise you, and I know that I'm curious to see just to what degree their talents extend. My other favorite part was seeing a great character from an earlier version of the Titans, known as Miguel. Now, you might recognize Miguel from that time when he was wearing a purple-colored outfit and used purple bricks in order to help the Titans fight crime. He's got a new role now as Red Hood's right-hand man, and seeing this great character, smooth, cool, and clearly composed no matter what the situation, made me think that I'll be coming back to this book now, not just because of my interest in Jason Todd, but because of the attachment of a great character like Miguel, who, since his departure from the Titans, is someone who I've been curious to find out just where he's now fitting in and what new place he might be calling home for now during DC's rebirth. On my favorite part for the art... I'd like to start out with this very cool variant cover of a green, gray-skinned skeleton face wearing the red hood and peeking just out of the shadows of that hood. And of course, the short sleeve outfit reveals some really cool, very tough, quite yoke-looking arms that could only be for someone who is, well, used to using all the muscles that go with them. My other favorite part that came from the art side was this great series of falling and fighting panels while also carrying on quite a lively debate between Red Hood and one of the members of the Five Aces on page 21. Jason and the villain, who now works for Penguin as part of the Five Aces, are familiar with each other due to their relationship with the All Cast. As with any book, there are going to be least favorite parts. For Red Hood, my least favorite story side had to do with the introduction of a former love interest that felt really forced. I know just from a overview that she was someone or something to complicate the attack by the Five Aces, but she felt more like an unnecessary kind of Rube Goldberg step, something that was just an additional calculation, much like a chess move, than even an emotional struggle or difficulty or challenge for Jason. Now, I do like the fact that the editor's note lets me know that this is bringing together some history from Red Hood and the Outlaws, Volume 1, Number 28, but I didn't like the way it was used here. And unfortunately, it moves right into my least favorite part from the art team on this one, which is the kissing scene on page number 10's bottom panel. It felt cheesy. It also felt forced. And the spotlights sort of splaying in the distance on either side of them as they embrace and kiss felt cheesy. I know what the intention might have been, but for me, it didn't ring true. And with all those thoughts, my score for Red Hood Outlaw number 33 was a solid three. You can give us your score when you tag us on social media. With time for just two more books, I move right into Detective Comics number 1001. Let's start with what's happening. Bats all over Gotham are dying, and after all of the excitement of Detective Comics number 1000, and the numerous stories that came from it, it could be easy to think that there's only smooth sailing ahead, and all the challenges are behind a character when they reach book number 1000. But that's not the case for Batman. Never has been, never will be. And with these bats all over Gotham dying, we get to see the first move from the Arkham Knight in an all-too-well-planned takedown of the Dark Knight. And while it starts with the death of all of these bats, the introduction and the ignition of a small sun over the city of Gotham at nighttime is really just the next step in what appears to be many more to follow. Now, why I picked it has to do with the fact that Arkham Knight feels like a new version of the character of Azrael, as I saw him in the 1990s. And I always wondered how Nightfall would have been different if Batman and Azrael hadn't formed a relationship, one that would allow him to take on the mantle when Batman was broken by Bane. I feel, though, that there's something different in that Arkham Knight's mission echoes a history similar to that of the Court of Owls, and a belief that when Gotham has fallen so far into the darkness, That only a plan set in motion from so far into its history can come forward and bring it any hope of redemption. Now, I had a few favorite parts, and I'm going to start with the story. Watching Batman follow the mystery of the dying bats was a really great chance to once again see the detective, who's named for this series, Detective Comics, put in the detective work. It's earnest and methodical. But foreshadowing has already suggested that this is all just a trap. And I like seeing the impact when the trail of clues lead Batman to Francine Langstrom and the effect that it's having on her, which eventually forces her to inject the man bat serum, turning her into the woman bat and fleeing to a bat. Sanctuary at the zoo. It's there that the Dark Knight finally has a chance to give her an antidote that reverts her back to her human form. And even then, more great clues are revealed through her mumbling about too much white noise and other references to interference. The methodical pursuit of Batman with manpower and arrows that follows is completely unrelenting. And extremely powerful. It's an impressive moment to witness just how much is required to eventually bring him to the feet of the Arkham Knight. And it's all started with my favorite part from the art, which introduces just what's really happening with this violent transition on page 14 from dark to light. It's so sudden and so disruptive that it actually jars and shakes Batman from his balance and in the process he even calls out to Alfred if there's been an explosion to which it's announced that no it's just a sudden burst of sunlight because a tiny sun appears to have been lit just above the city of Gotham and that sensation From the art to the jarring sunlight is met with the immediate pursuit of Batman by his pursuers who are all acolytes of the Arkham Knight. And it's swift and it's sudden and it's so continuous that at no point as a reader is there a moment to take a breath. It's simply the continued aggressive takedown of Batman nullifying all of his attempts and beginning by cutting his line when he tries to swing towards what is causing this new sun. As much as I enjoyed this issue, I did have a few least favorite parts, and I'm going to start with the story, which had probably its weakest moments when it tried to present the ideas of this group and their concepts both while preparing for their assault and then later during their attack are made about ideas like light, and how the light will clean and burn. And while I know that that's something, especially the concept of light, or groups led by, or in service to, the light, is a popular idea, in this way it felt a bit too forced, and almost like a reference to, for those who remember the fantasy series, the Robert Jordan Wheel of Time series, or some other, somewhat clunky sci-fi philosophy that I've read or seen before. I know there could be more value here, but on first introduction, that's just how I'm perceiving it. On my least favorite art side are pages 15 through 16, which are the moments when Batman is deep in his attempts to get away. The blurs of motion that's created around his arms and legs and torso as he is continuing to move is very evident and I think well done. But it draws me to a strange lengthening of his face and neck, which is just weird. And I swear that it feels like, to me, like it's a version of Plastic Man doing a or his best Batman impersonation. And I'm honestly not trying to be a jerk here, but it just doesn't fit. Especially when, after all that, by page 18, his face no longer seems as stretched out. Now, I noticed some of this effect in one of the earlier pages, but it was very short-lived. And yet, from pages 15 to 16, the series of panels in which it appears again are very discordant. And something that pulled me out of the story long enough to ask, Why is this happening? And is there something more that I should be understanding? Or is it just something I don't understand? And that's why I don't like it. Or do I just not like it because I don't think it fits? And I ended up with the last one. I really just didn't like it because I didn't enjoy the way it fit. And I didn't feel like it was something that added to the story in any way. And as I mentioned, because it pulled me out, I felt it was one of my least favorite parts. Now, all that being said, you might think it's easy to guess my score, but on a range of one to five, I gave Detective Comics number 1001 a solid four. Your score will stay a secret until you share it with us. And it appears that with this beautiful weather, even the birds are beginning to sing. I don't know if you can hear them in the background, but they've certainly begun calling. As we approach uh, my fifth and final book for the Spinner Rack. And for this next title, I went ahead and chose Justice League Odyssey number 8. Let's start out with what's happening. Darkseid claims to have the solution that the Odyssey team needs. But this team has him shackled until they can figure out if he's someone they're willing to trust. The warriors of Tamarin, Azrael, are attacking, and time is growing short for the team to decide if they can trust Darkseid. Why I picked it? Well, with the source wall broken, and things falling apart, I love that this motley crew of Green Lantern, Jessica, Cory of Tamarin, and Azrael have gone charging into the ghost sector against the wishes of the rest of the Justice League, an attempt to right a wrong that they all feel responsible for allowing to happen. I generally feel that a quest set out to avenge a loss and also to redeem a sense of either failure or inadequacy can be so fraught with emotion, risk, and the ability to lose everything with such a gamble to be an extremely compelling story that I generally find myself um, unable to turn away from. (laughs) And seeing this proposed not only on a galactic scale, but with some of my favorite characters, and some who I have a history with, but am enjoying seeing cast in new light, such as Azrael, and the Green Lantern, Jessica, has made for a really enjoyable story, and one that every so many issues, I find myself drawn back in to catch back up, no matter what new title might have taken me away, simply to see just how far a challenge can be extended, one where the risk continue to mount, the threat continues to grow, and the opportunity for success continues to narrow. And that's what I feel is really occurring here in Justice League Odyssey number 8. Regarding my favorite parts, on the story side, Darkseid's claim that he is trying to preserve life itself is such an antithesis to everything that he's been shown to do previously. I mean, this is the same Darkseid who spent almost his entire existence trying to figure out a way to essentially defeat life and turn it into the dark misery that he as dark side ruler of apocalypse has come to meet. But his argument isn't without logic. See, without life, he has no existence as the opposite to life. He will cease to exist, and so will the structures of order and chaos which sustain the universe in which he has ruled for so long. But In order to preserve life, Darkseid claims he must become a fully powered cosmic being. He blames the Justice League for putting him in this position. He blames them for breaking the wall and reducing him to infanthood so that he was powerless to stop the coming darkness when it arrived. He actually begins to belittle the team for referring to him as something so petty in his mind as a supervillain. And he feels that in many ways, they are the villains. And he is just a cosmic agent of order, doing what he knew to be right, and they were simply getting in the way. And that now, all of the disastrous consequences that are clearly compounding around them are something that he blames, or that he lays the blame for, directly at their feet. My favorite moment for art is when Azrael, realizing that he and his allies are outnumbered and clearly going to lose, steps forward and listens to his internal voice and begins speaking to the Azrael soldiers as their equal and as their leader. And I really like this image of the bodies falling around him, swords drawn against him, and while aware of all this, lowering his sword so that he can begin making his speech. It's a great image. I love the uh, darkness of the lighting and the images of the bodies and the chaos of those around him still fighting. And then off in the distance, the serenity of two planets, one closer, one farther away, appearing like distant moons, clearly creating a unfamiliar, foreign, and clearly alien setting for this to occur and yet for this soldier from earth this warrior from a hidden and secretive caste, and his ability to using just his voice be the commanding presence to bring all this to a halt. Now of course it's pointed out that Darkseid had said that Azrael would be the voice that binds and apparently in this moment he's beginning to understand just what that means not only for him but for the team and how they can potentially move forward with the assistance of Azrael's acolytes and perhaps gain the assistance of even more allies, even those who once viewed them as enemies. Now, of course, this wouldn't be a full review if I didn't break down what I felt were my least favorite points. And starting with the story, I don't trust a broken dark side any farther than I can throw him. And I don't trust this attempt on his part to make the villains or make the heroes feel like villains and he as a villain present himself as a savior. And despite all of his claims about nobility and bringing order, when the attack from Azrael's soldiers and the Tamaranian soldiers led by, or Tamaran soldiers led by Cory's sister, begin their attack, Darkseid is clearly thinking about himself and even while shackled, his animalistic attempts to escape, including running from the battle to find an ancient temple and running past Cyborg in order to do so, appears completely self-serving and anything but noble. And actually this leads into my least favorite art moment, which is when Cyborg Follows dark side, and in doing so, stumbles upon a temple on page nineteen. The temple looks like something that would be considered ancient here on earth, uh, something that I would tie to the Aztec Mayan, or even the early um, ziggurat style temples, which were one of the first forms of a temple or pyramid to be built in uh, pre industrial, or even in our most ancient societies here on earth. And yet, despite the fact that it has a stamp of dark side on the outside, it and it's clearly meant to be ancient, my initial instinct was to ask, why a temple? I mean, why not something more primitive? Like an ancient but highly stylized, um, I don't know, beehive? Or some other sort of structure that didn't feel as clunky as a temple. I mean, I've watched enough ancient aliens as a young person, and as much as I enjoy it when I do, this image didn't ring true for me. It felt forced. It felt like an attempt to claim authenticity by using a structure that we consider ancient. But on a galactic scale, it doesn't feel like something that would be categorized as ancient at least along that sort of uh, a longer timeline and that brings me to the end of my review of justice league odyssey number eight my score for this one was a solid 3.5 almost a four your score is something i won't know until you tell me and keep in mind dc comics news is available on all the major podcast platforms Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. So please head over and subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. I like five stars and excellent reviews. How about you? And when it comes to those scores and comments and agreements and disagreements about my top five, well, you've got a few options available. You can follow us on social media, whether your favorite platform is Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, or YouTube. Just tag us at DC Comics News, and then leave us your comment, your score, your opinion, or something else you just think we need to know. And, as always, remember your mission as standard Bears for comic fans around the world. Remember, read more comics. I've been your host, Seth Singleton. Thanks for joining me again. Can't wait to talk with you next week about my newest selections from the Spinner Rack, right here from the home office at DC Comics News.